Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I am Dan Newman. I am joined by my brother and co-host, the same person, Andrew Newman, here on the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. Sports History Network is growing by leaps and bounds, and we hope you all are enjoying our podcast as well as the many other podcasts that have either been on the network for a while or are just recently joining the network. You can check us out at sportshistorynetwork.com. We also, I should note, and this is an announcement that I think has been made on a couple of the other podcasts, we now have our own YouTube channel on the Sports History Network where you can check out audio recordings of all of the various podcasts, including ours. And I was checking out a couple of hours uh, just a couple of days ago. So just another way to access the podcast if you are so inclined in doing so. Andrew, how are you doing this evening? I am doing pretty well, Dan. Um, I am uh, watching our first place New York Yankees. I am, which is, I don't, you know, I realize sometimes I look back at some of these and they don't age well when I talk about what I'm doing at the time. Like the, <laughs> last, the last episode I did, I said something about like, oh, and hopefully after tonight, the Celtics will be out. I think that was the second round against the Bucks, And here we are in the NBA finals. So I won't mention any of that. I feel confident that by the time this airs, unless we're really asleep on the job, the Yankees will still be in first place. So yeah, we'll get I, this out by October. So Yes. So I won't date myself with that. Um, You know, tonight is an episode that uh, has been sort of brewing for a long time. Um, Yeah, this one was your idea. Yeah, we well. So what happened was we um, we do the in memoriam every year and, you know, not to be sort of like morbid about it, but we usually record a few of them in December and then towards the third episode we have and you come up with a list of all the people who've passed away up to that point this year. And then we just end up doing a bunch of one-offs towards the end. Cause as the year nears the end, a lot of people pass away. Um, the most the prominent night- example of that was that as soon as we finished recording last year, I got a text from my wife saying that Sam Jones had died. And so we had to hop back on a couple of days later, but anyway, keep going. This was one that um, that was actually the night this happened and people were texting me about it. I was on my first date with my now girlfriend. Um, and I was like, you know what? We'll obviously talk about this in the in memoriam, but this should be its own whole, whole own episode. Um, and that's John Matt. Um, you know, we will get into a lot of this stuff. Um, there's a few buckets to John Madden. Um, there's the coach of the Oakland Raiders, there's the broadcaster, the pioneering broadcaster from the, the 80s and, and 90s and into the 2000s. And then there's sort of the, the cultural aspect of it, the commercials and the bus and the, um, 
you know, just some of the, the catchphrases and things like that. And then there's the game and the game, the video game is, you know, within the cultural thing is, is almost its own subcategory and all that's important. And we're going to talk a lot about that, but I think sometimes that it gets skewed where that's 80% of the conversation is he was the guy who said, boom, and talked about, you know, food and stuff like that when really, and we'll, well, obviously we're going to try to tackle this chronologically. He was a, a coach of one of the key teams of the seventies. And then B, he was a really revolutionary broadcaster, which is his most enduring legacy. So we will try to do justice to all of them. There's a couple of guys that I think of sort of in the pantheon of sports that get reduced to a cliche. Um, Babe Ruth, to a certain extent, gets reduced to to a cliche, but he was so great that he's able to surpass that. Um, Ty Cobb, I think, gets reduced to a cliche, even though that's more of a negative cliche and a lot of it perhaps unfair. I think at times people maybe reduce Jackie Robinson to a cliche, both to his benefit and to his detriment. Those are just some of the names I was thinking through as guys that are sort of um, sort of, you know, one dimensional. The closest I could come to Yo- to uh, to John Madden was Yogi Berra, a guy who's very much kind of reduced to a character and much like Yogi Berra, John Madden, for financial reasons, for advertising commercials, his own career. I think to a certain extent, he sort of cultivated that image, but also was so much more than it. So you're right. He's not just the guy who yelled boom and came up with a video game. And there's just so many different facets of the guy. And the other thing that I would say about Madden, and maybe I just didn't look hard enough. It was really hard to find anybody that he had a problem with or anybody that had anything negative to say about him, whether it was guys he played for guys, he broadcasted with guys, he you know, whose games he broadcasted. And obviously in these documentaries, especially the ones that were issued right after his death, it wasn't going to be a, a hit job on the guy, but you don't really hear about him having a lot of problems with anybody. No. And you think he's been a guy who's been famous for 50 years or, or let, let, let's even be conservative and say 45, you know, before he died, mm-hmm. won the Super Bowl in 1976, passed away at the end of 2021. So even if he was, you know, and his fame really only grew as the years went on. Um, and you don't hear a lot of stories of people that he big timed or, I mean, I'm sure there's somebody out there who says, Oh, I asked him for an autograph and he was a jerk, but like, I mean, like producers and PAs and, um, you know, different people at networks and and whoever, like you don't hear stories of him having like an explosive temper. The only story I have sort of like that we'll get into, which is, is not really overbearing. It's more of an endearing story. We'll get into in the broadcasting section, but um, there's a, a, a NFL network series. And it's this, the name of the series, you know, where they talk about all these guys and it's called the football life. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that, summarizes anyone more than John Matt. And I will say that I watched his a football life documentary yesterday in preparation for this podcast. So I, w- I watched the 76 Raiders America's game. <laughs> Was he interviewed for that? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. It may be, and this is maybe kind of a, a later thing, but you know, something we would have talked about later in the episode, but th- 
there was a really good documentary on him called All Madden. Did you watch it? That just came out you know, like last Christmas. I think it came out on Christmas, like three days before he died. Yeah, it aired um, on Fox. You know, I, I never, think I never got around to watching it. And it's funny because it aired on Fox, and then either right after he died, or maybe even this was in the works beforehand. It was on every streaming service you can imagine. It was still on Fox and Fox Sports. But then you could also get it on Peacock. You could get it on ESPN Plus. And I watched it probably, you know, mid-January maybe. And it was really, really good. I went to look for it to rewatch it in preparation for this episode. And it's gone. Apologies, Arnie, for what I'm about to say. But I couldn't even find it to, like, stream illegally. So, for whatever reason, it's disappeared. It was on all these streaming services, and now it's just gone. So I don't know, which is part of my lesson where if you really like something, buy it on physical media because you never know when it's going to disappear for one reason or other. But anyway, I don't know what happened to it, and I hope they bring it back in some format because it just seems so weird to do this thing with all this hype, and then six months later, it's gone. So if anybody has any ideas, uh, helloworldsports at gmail.com. Please email me because I want to watch this documentary again. But so, yeah, um, you're right. He lived a football life. Mm-hmm. And let's start sort of from the beginning. And we'll we'll do the beginning kind of quick. I mean, it, up until his days as the coach of the Raiders, we'll, 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 we'll discuss this, but we'll go kind of quick. Let's be real honest. Most of the time, read a biography about a sports figure and you open it up and it's like, oh, he was born here. And you see like. I, I always like if I'm reading a book on that, I'm like, how many pages till I get the stuff I'm more interested in? I mean, some guys have really interesting upbringings and it's part of it, but um, and a lot know, of times just, they'll start with like when the great grandfather first came to America or something. Yeah. Like that. And I'm kind of like, this better end up being important. And then if it's not, you know what I mean? Um, all right. So Madden, uh, he was born in Minnesota in April of 36 um, blue collar family. His father was an auto mechanic. They moved uh, into the Bay Area, so San Francisco, Oakland kind of area, where he would obviously achieve his professional success. Um, as a football player, his college career is very hard to follow. Did you see any of this? Well, he started off at one college, and then he, and I, this was in the documentary. He started off and at uh, was it um, San Mateo College of San, college of San Mateo. And he didn't like it because he didn't have a car and you needed a car to get around the um, the campus. And so he left there after a year or two. So, yeah, he, he played one season at the College of San Mateo in 1954, got a football scholarship to the University of Oregon, Oregon. Sorry, my friends who live in Oregon will not be happy about that. Um, he redshirted because of a knee injury, had an operation, went back to the College of San Mateo in 1955. Then Grays Harbor College in 1956, and finally transferred to Cal Poly, where he played for in 1957. So he went to five colleges in five years, but one of them he was there twice, but not consecutively. It's like when you read about a celebrity who got married eight times, but he married the same person a couple of times. So you don't know exactly how to count it. Um, Digression time here. The only other person I can think of who has that in the sports context is Jeff Van Gundy. Jeff Van Gundy went from like Yale to a community college in upstate New York to somewhere out in California. These guys who want to coach and play sports but are not very good, they'll go to amazing lengths to move around. So um, he was drafted late in the draft. Or I, I just don't know if this was late in the draft. It's late from my eyes. 21st round by the Eagles in 1958. 
for context these days, there's seven. And with the compensatory picks, it's more like nine, you know, overall. But this was the 21st round. Suffered an injury on his other knee and never played a down in the NFL. Who knows if he would have anyway, to be honest, but certainly didn't get that chance. Um, and by 1960, he is in coaching. Um, starts out small at uh, Allen Hancock College in Santa uh, in Santa Maria, California. He's with San Diego uh, San Diego State from 1964 to 1966. There, he is under Don Air Coriel. Uh, later of the San Diego or Los Angeles Chargers. Um, And by 1967, he is the linebackers coach with the Oakland Raiders, uh, who are still then in the American Football League. He is under uh, Raiders head coach John Rauch. Is that how he pronounced his name, Rauch? Correct. Yeah, Rauch, who had taken over himself for Al Davis when Al Davis was the coach. and he, so he was the linebacker coach for the Raiders in Super Bowl two. So he gets to say he did coach in some capacity against Vince Lombardi. Couple things, one more philosophical and another factual. He, one of his boyhood friends is John Robinson, who later becomes the coach at USC, actually does two different tenures at USC and wins, uh, National championship with USC in 1978. One of the one of the coaches of that sort of great run of USC with all the running backs and everything throughout the 60s, 70s, and so on. He in 59, when he's drafted by the Eagles and never makes the team because of injury, never, never suits up, never plays it down. He kind of hangs around with the team for most of that season, and he ends up watching a lot of video and film with Norm Van Brocklin, the Hall of Fame quarterback who had won some championships in the NFL with the Rams in the 40s and 50s and then finishes out his career in the 60s and 60. um, Van Brocklin's Eagles beat Lombardi's Packers in 1960, the only postseason loss that Lombardi ever has. So he kind of, you know, as going through, he's touching on all of these great personalities, John Robinson, Van Brocklin. The other thing is, and this is sort of a a comment on his early life, but also sort of his whole life. We talked about how he lived a football life. He, in a lot of ways, also kind of lives an American life in that there are so many things that Madden does that touch on cultural or historical phenomenon in America of the post-war era, being born in the Midwest and then moving to California as a child and growing up in California, I feel like you read biographies of whether it's politicians, musicians, other people in history. That's a very common theme of people who grew up in that sort of post-war. And obviously Madden was born before World War II, but that's a common theme of people in the mid 20th century being born on the, whether it's on the East Coast or in the Midwest and then moving to California. Al Michaels is another example of that, of Madden's future broadcast partner a little while later. So he does that. And then he's part of the video game boom. He's part of the AFL, which is sort of a, a big element kind of associated with the counterculture of the 1960s 
there's so many areas where Madden kind of is a part of these cultural cultural phenomena of the, the mid 20th century. So you can kind of see some of these things in American history through the lens of his life. Yeah, and I have an ESPN article up from when he died that's got a lot of different stories, um, and we'll we'll reference a few of those later. But um, there's when he's a broadcaster, there's some stories about celebrities, including one that if you if I said to you, name five celebrities in the last half of the 20th century that you do not think I will have a story about John Madden, and this would be one of them. Um, That'll make sense later. A teaser. Um, there's also a 9-11 story in here. You know, there, there, there's a lot of uh, of stories. So um, I guess we're we're at the we're at the point where he's 32 years old in the end of the 1968 football season. We're right on the cusp of the NF or the NFL AFL merger. Um, which is basically inevitable. If I think it's already been announced at this point that it's going to take 1970. And um, John Rauch resigns to become the head coach of the Buffalo Bills. Uh, and on February 4th, 1969, uh, at the age of 32, John Madden is named head coach of one of only, what, 26 NFL teams at the time, and it's the Oakland Raiders. All right, two points on that. First of all, I, there has to be more to that story because how stupid was that of John Rouch? The Bills huh? stunk. They stunk for the whole 70s. Well, he didn't know they were going to stink for the whole 70s. No, but I mean, they, they, I, well, they, what, they made a couple of AFL title games in the early 60s, but the Raiders had just made it to the Super Bowl. What, you, what year did Madden start? 69? 69 is the head coach. And didn't the Jets beat the Raiders in 68 in the AFL title game? Uh, that sounds right. Let's see. They lost in the AFL championship game to the New York Jets. Oh, well, what do you think happened? It probably was a conflict with Al Davis. This is from John Rouch's Wikipedia. During his three years as head coach, Davis' frequent interference with the day-to-day coaching role became a source of aggravation for Rouch. On January 16, 1969, he re- dealt with the problem by resigning from his championship team to become head coach of the struggling Buffalo Bills. So it was because of, and I have an Al Davis quote here in a minute about Madden, but um, you know, when you talk about, Oh, a guy who never had problems with, you don't hear John Madden got along with Al Davis in the capacity of head coach, which didn't happen much. So this is going to make sense. And I don't know, maybe I've, I've had a beer and a half here and I'm kind of relaxing as we record at the end of the week. So this is kind of a little bit far afield, but, there's a Frank Sinatra quote about women. And he said, no matter how beautiful a woman is, there's some guy somewhere who's had enough of her. You know what? And so that's kind of the way I feel about some of these coaches who leave these teams, whether it's Jimmy Johnson or John Rouch with the Raiders. It's like, no no matter how much winning there is, they can't enjoy it because these owners are just so horrible that they have to get themselves out of the situation and it looks good from the outside, but it's terrible on the inside. So that's, yeah, that's probably a lot of was what was going on in the seventies, Dick Williams with the A's, he left after winning two world series because he just couldn't deal with Charlie Finley anymore. And it sounds like that's some of what's going on here. Same building. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then do Same you know do you know who the um do you know who they do you know who Davis wanted as the new coach after Rouch left? I feel like I saw that, but I don't have it written down here. Chuck <laughs> Knoll. Oh, interesting. Chuck yeah, Knoll, right. who was an assistant of Shula's in Baltimore. And Davis wanted Chuck Knoll, but Knoll went to the Steelers instead. And so that was when he kind of settled on, quote unquote, settled on Madden. So the sort of the overarching theme for Madden as the coach of the Raiders, certainly through 1976, is they would get to the conference championship game almost every year and they would lose it almost every year. This is the AFC in the late sixties, early seventies. And if you think about that, it's dominated by early in the decade, it's dominated by the, uh, the dolphins. Then the Steelers pretty much own the conference throughout. So they have a run of Madden's first year in 1969. They go 12 and one, but they lose the conference championship game to the chiefs that or the, I guess that's the AFL championship game, but they lose to the, the chiefs that would have been right. In 69. Yep. Yeah. That was the, that was the Len Dawson, Hank Stram chiefs team. And then in 1970, uh, the first year of the AFC, like of a full NFL after the merger, they're back in the AFC champ. This time other in the AFC championship game and they lose to the Colts. So he's been there two years. The Raiders four years in a row have been to at least the conference championship game or the Super Bowl. They've lost them all. But Madden in his first two years is one win away from a Super Bowl. Both years loses to the team that eventually won the Super Bowl. Um, But, you know, is it sort of sets the tone that they're not able to get over the hump just yet. Well, and then I don't know if you want to carry it further a little more. But so they lose to the Super Bowl champions in 69 in Mm -hmm. 70. 71, he actually is eight and eight, four and two, doesn't make the playoffs. 72, which is the year the Dolphins are undefeated, he doesn't lose to the Dolphins. He loses to Pittsburgh in the divisional round, but that's the immaculate reception. So that is the historic, perhaps the most famous play in NFL history, the immaculate reception where Franco Harris catches the ball on a deflection, basically, you know two inches or half an inch from the ground. So he loses to them in 72, 73 does well, lose yeah, before, before you, before you move on for 72. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, this was a play that Madden never stopped insisting was not correctly called. Um, the article here I have says Madden Steelers immaculate reception will bother me until the day I die. Um, playoff game, December 23rd, 1972. Um, the Immaculate Reception got a little air. This was in the All Madden documentary that aired on Christmas this year, shortly before Madden's death. It says, when a guy crosses a goal line, it's either a touchdown or not. Madden recalled in an 80s interview that was part of the documentary. They didn't call it a touchdown. They didn't know if it was a touchdown. He was almost just, he says, I don't know. You don't know. Or he says, I know you don't know. I'll tell you. It was a double touch. The referee is on the phone. He makes a call to someone, and then he comes back out of the dugout and signals touchdown. Not that I carry old grudges. It bothers me then. It bothers me now. And it'll bother me until the day I die. Um, 30, no. in two, go ahead. I'm sorry. In 2002, 
Madden and Michaels were calling a Steelers-Bucks game on the 30th anniversary of the Immaculate Reception on Monday Night Football. They showed they were obviously talking about this. He said, Madden said, you talk about stuff that you get in your stocking for Christmas, Madden stated. That was the night before Christmas Eve, and the Immaculate Reception was one big old lump of coal, and that big old lump of coal has been sitting down there for 30 years. Once the guy says touchdown, it's all over. The game's over. Your season's over. Everything's over. You just go home. You don't get another chance. Um, So I know you were going to talk about the rule. Um, Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. So the reference is that in those days, if a ball hit one player on the offense, it could not be then caught by for a reception by the offense, by the same team, unless it was also hit by a defensive player. And in the immaculate reception, Terry Bradshaw had thrown to a running back by the name of Frenchie Fuqua. And it was he was it Jack Tatum that hit him. That I, I don't was, know. Might be. Yeah. I it think was, it was I, Jack. I, I look that up. I think it was Jack Tatum that hit him. And then the ball carom to Franco Harris, who, like I said, caught it at his shoe tops and then ran it in for a touchdown. Unlike today, where if one offensive player hits it, it still counts as a reception or a touchdown or whatever. If the other player gets it. Yeah. And I, it was Tatum who we'll talk about yep. in a couple minutes. So that rule, which had come up in some other moments in the 1970s, I don't know exactly when they changed it, but that was Madden's point. It wasn't even that the ball hit the ground before Franco picked it up, which some people still claim 50 years later, but also this idea that nobody but the Steelers had touched the ball, so it shouldn't have been a legal reception. And that was, like I said, that was a rule at the time, although it's been changed now for many, many years. Just to put a bow on that, um, Fuqua reportedly insists to this day that he knows whom the ball hit first, but will never tell. Which sort of gives up the ghost, because if it was him, he would say it. You know what I say to that? What? Give me a break, Frenchie. <laughs> Another wrestling reference. Um, I, I want to break in here. here here's a, just, there's a great book, and I haven't read the whole thing, but I, I use it a lot in research. It's called The Last Headbangers, NFL Football in the rowdy, reckless 70s. And it's a lot about the Raiders and the Steelers and a lot of these tough teams of the 70s. And it says, Madden stood 6'4", weighed 270, and sweated like the offensive tackle he used to be. His black polo shirt clung to an ample belly over polyester Sansabelt slacks. The youngest head coach in the league at 36, he wasn't the rah-rah type. Madden had one rule, show up on time and play hard on Sunday. He treated his professionals as professionals. Sorry, he treated his players as professionals who didn't need pep talks. So, as much as you might think that he might have been sort of a rah rah guy, as a coach, he really wasn't. He was animated on the sidelines, but he was not a. He wasn't. He wasn't a screamer at his players. He wasn't one of those guys who motivated like a Lombardi with the constant energy and loudness. And I think the other thing that's important to realize about Madden, he's a smart guy. You know, this is a guy who's got a master's degree. He has a teaching certificate. This is not a guy who's just about kind of screaming and yelling and getting his players motivated. He's a really, and this is evidenced by the fact that he was a broadcaster for 30 some odd years too. He's a really good football mind as a coach. 
Yeah, I, I think it's I think Madden in a lot of ways, like Lombardi, has become sort of this projection for what people would like to imagine he was. Yeah. Like um, you know, I don't know what John Madden's and, and certainly it's not as hot button a topic in football as it is in baseball, but like I don't know what John Madden's thoughts were on a lot of sort of new stats and ways of doing things, but like everybody assumes, oh, he must have hated that stuff, even though he was a guy, you know. He watched a ton of film and he, you know, was meticulous in his preparation, both as a coach and then as a broadcaster, um, which, again, we'll, we'll get into in a little while. Like he, he was not a like, ah, we'll just go out there and hit kind of guy. People like to imagine that because that's it's easier. You know, again, it's easier to imagine a cartoon character than it is to imagine a coach. I think also um, we should sort of at this moment talk about the seventies Raiders as a collection of folks. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, that, and that's a central issue of his, the job he did as a coach. I mean, the Raiders of the Al Davis, you know, the, the Al Davis Raiders and this, this, he was always trying to cultivate this. This was the time it worked, which led him to continue trying to cultivate it. Lots of guys who were their own sort of, Characters, shall we say, Ken Stabler, Jack Tatum, Ted Hendricks, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, the list goes on and on and on. And Madden wouldn't have been able to. I don't think this was his style anyway, but had he even wanted to, he wouldn't be able to run this team like, you know, they were the the 58 Colts or, you know what I mean? And yes, everybody absolutely. got a cut. And A. Al Davis would. But Madden was very. Um, he basically let guys do whatever they want. You know, as long as it didn't impact them on if they showed up Sunday ready to play, he did not, frankly, seem to care or at least publicly adopted a persona of somebody who didn't even care if they were out raising hell on the, you know, during the week or, you know, shooting their mouths off in the press or whatever. He, you know, which, again, might go sort of contrary to what people would think about John that. The other thing, he's a very successful coach. He's 103, 32, and 7, which is the second best regular season winning percentage of all time for a head coach. He's second only to a guy named Guy Chamberlain, who was a coach in the 20s, the very, very early days of the NFL. I think a lot of those games, they didn't even have a ball. (laughs) They couldn't even afford a ball. They just... I don't went think out there and, went out there and fought. <laughs> I don't know if that specifically is accurate, but you don't know. I, I think I, I know that for pretty sure that they played the games with the ball. I think I can probably swear to that. 1970 to 1974. So five seasons. He has one of the best offensive lines in NFL history. Three Hall of Famers playing next to each other. You have Jim Otto at center, perhaps the greatest center of all time. And then you have Gene Upshaw, one of the great guards. And then next to him, Art Shell, who, in addition to being the first black head coach of the modern era, is also a Hall of Fame all-time great offensive tackle. Otto was gone. Otto was older. He had been with the Raiders since the early 60s. So by the time they win their Super Bowl in 77, Jim Otto is 
gone, but I'm sorry, I should say 77, 76. By the time they win their Super Bowl in 76, Jim Otto is gone. But one of the all-time great offensive lines for that five-year period, Otto, Upshaw, Shell. And then the other thing is um, they he is, even now, he is revealing himself as just a fundamentally decent man. And I want to tell the story of Daryl Stingley, who was a player on the New England Patriots, who was hit by Jack Tatum, who was a safety on the Raiders, who was known as the assassin. And sort of like you were talking about kind of cultivating this image, the Raiders had an image as a dirty team. And some of that may have been a bit overblown, but there was also, I think, a lot of truth to it. And Tatum was the worst of the worst. And he was known, among other things, for hitting receivers in the helmet very hard with his forearm, with his forearm. And in a game in the 70s against the New England Patriots, uh, Jack Tatum hits a receiver by the for the Patriots by the name of Daryl Stingley. And Stingley is paralyzed for life. And. One of the criticisms of Tatum is that he never goes and sees Stingley in the hospital, never really makes much of an attempt to reach out to him, you know, as a gesture, as a way of showing this, you know, the sort of human level of caring. But Madden does. Madden visits Daryl Stingley in the hospital over and over and over again. And Stingley says that a day or two after the game, he wakes up, tries to lift his head, and he looks around to see what else is in the room. And as his vision cleared, he sees a hulking figure staring down at me. His eyes were red and there were tears running down his cheeks. Madden gripped Stingley's numb hand and touched my face the way a father would. And then it says later that day, Madden may have stayed, may have saved Stingley's life. The paralyzed patient was learning to keep track of his surroundings by moving only his eyes. He was struggling to breathe and saw Madden hurry to the door yelling, nurse, nurse. And a monitor came to um, replace a plug um, in Stingley's mouth that had come loose. And had Madden not been in the room and noticed this, it's possible that Stingley would have suffocated to death. So even by this time, you're seeing a guy who's got concern for these players, not just as, you know, brute gladiators, but also as players. This is a guy who's not on his team. There are coaches, I think, then and now who wouldn't show that level of caring for a guy who was on their own team, let alone an opposition player. So he is not just a tough guy. He's somebody who understands the human element and the human toll that the game takes on these players. Yeah, and I think that would then sort of inform the rest of his involvement in football uh, for the rest of his life, which is just like he would often get, I don't want to say mocked, but, you know, he had his favorites and he really, really liked those guys. But, you know, I think it was partially because he never lost sight of the fact that it was guys out there, you know, 
he, he was a guy who came from the locker room, came from the locker room with a lot of characters. He knew, fair or not, guys who, who never were in the locker room sometimes, it's hard to form the perception of the players on that level. There's a clip uh, from sometime in the 90s when he's doing a game and they, a player has to leave the game to go to the sidelines after getting his you know, quote-unquote bell rung. And this is before the days of concussion protocol. This is before the days of anything. You know, this is the 90s in football. They're more like the 50s than they are like the modern day when it came to head injuries and brain trauma and that type of thing. And Madden, who, again, if you don't know a lot about John Madden, you think he was would be the kind of guy who would say, oh, I just they ought to get out there and play and hit and hit and hit. And he very thoughtfully says, basically, you know, I, I have a problem when people take the phrase, well, they just had their bell rung like that's some sort of a, a minor thing. And what we're talking about is, is serious head injuries and the potential for for long term damage. I don't have his exact words, but he did express that concern for players long before a lot of people did. I have a couple of other th- sort of themes from his coaching career uh, that I want to touch on, but did you have anything first on sort of his, his coaching career? Um, so I, I just, I, 74, you know, again, they're, they're kind of going through this thing of playoff uh, losses and, and to eventual champions in 74, they do win the, in the divisional round, they win in the, what they call the sea of hands game against the Dolphins on the last play of the game or one of the last plays of the game where um, they're down 26 to 21 and uh, Ken Stabler throws it to Clarence Davis and you know, there's like a million guys in the way and it ends up in Davis's hand uh, in, in Davis's hands and they end up winning. They go on to the AFC championship game. They lose the next week, but that was the first of two times in the next couple of years that they knocked off the two time defending Super Bowl champions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of their, they are involved in a lot of games that have names um, or plays that have names. There's the immaculate reception. There's the sea of hands. Isn't there the game where they just started kicking the ball down the field, the Holy roller. That's the Holy roller. And that is the, that is one of the great moments in sports. And I think I've actually mentioned this guy who is a um, who I've mentioned before, a guy by the name of Bill King. And you'd know him if you saw him. I he, ran into him once at Arroyo Seco. <laughs> he was the broadcaster for in the 70s. He was the broadcaster for the Raiders, the Athletics, and the Warriors. Oh, wow. So you figure he was there for a Super Bowl title, three World Series in the early 70s, and the Warriors won an NBA championship in 1975 in the NBA. And when they had this holy roller thing, this holy roller play, this was this was Bill King. The ball flipped forward is loose. A wild scramble. Two seconds on the clock. Casper grabbing the ball. It is ruled a fumble. Casper has recovered the in the end zone. The Oakland Raiders have scored on the most zany, unbelievable, absolutely impossible dream of a play. Madden is on the field. He wants to know if it's real. They said, yes, get your big butt out of here. He does. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Yeah, no, lots of memorable plays for for Madden mm-hmm. during that time period. So they win and that happens in 74. They lose to the Steelers um, the next year in 75. I think they actually missed the playoffs in 75. Uh, let's see here. 75. No, no they oh, lose sorry. to the Steelers yeah, right. in the AFC championship, 75 and 76. I was looking at, I was looking at the, uh, another time they lost two straight conference championship games. So they have now lost three straight conference championship games. They lost in 73 to the dolphins, 74 and 75 to the Steelers. And you know, it's, it's now been, they've lost one, two, three, six of the last eight conference championship games. Um, I think of to all teams that eventually won the Super Bowl. This is the AFC in the 70s. You have to think if you plug this team into the NFC in the 70s, how many Super Bowls do they get to? I mean, oh, who's, they're, be- who's they're better than those damn Viking teams that are making it every year? Yeah. And we probably underrate those Vikings teams because growing up, all you see is highlights of them getting destroyed in the Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and you know, some of those cowboy teams, but um, we get to 76. It's, you know, it's, there's a clip. I think at the end of the 75 season where they're asking Madden after the game about losing. And one of the guys, like one of the reporters is like, so Al, um, and it's a Madden you never really see where he's like, so dejected and he's kind of being sarcastic, but kind of being sincere. And he's just like, well, my name's John. Um, I was go, I was just about to mention that how there's sort of an overshadowing and this never really ends until he dies. There's, there's an overshadowing by anything else. Raiders by Al Davis for so many reasons. But yeah, he very dejectedly said, well, well, my name is John. And I think in a lot of ways, that's the real guy with Madden, a genuine, thoughtful, sensitive guy who was pained by the fact that he was losing, winning a lot during the regular season, but losing when it counted and probably felt a little bit slighted by the press by the fans he was very he was he was sensitive to the fact that he hadn't won one yet yeah and and you've heard quotes from uh you've heard quotes from al davis and who knows how much of this was true but basically saying like you know i've been the coach after that you know before john i was still kind of considered myself the coach or you know had wanted to have a say in everything from the football standpoint once we hired John Madden, I never like took a hand in that anymore because, you know, even decades later, Al Davis was very deferential. And I have a quote here. I actually just found this. It's from it goes all the way back to when ESPN page two was those yellow and red archives that you see sometimes. And it's a Madden quote about Al Davis. And he says. Al knows football, the rules, the ticket situation, the radio contracts, the advertising. He'd have a mood for each one. He would create his own moods, a mood for drafting, a mood for trading, a mood for negotiating. One mood just kicks right into another. You can simplify a single person. You can't single, simplify Al Davis. So it seems like they had as good a relationship as you possibly can when one of the people is Al Davis and the other person works for Al Davis. So... The 77 team, I, I guess we should probably 76. touch on it. 76 team. We should probably touch on it briefly. 13 and one. They lose one game to the New England Patriots early in the season. They give up 48 points. They don't give up. They don't give up more than 30 in any other game, but they lose to the Patriots. They give up 48 points very early in the season. Well, it's this, before, this right is before the team. 
to set the tone, week one for them, they beat the Raiders. The Raiders, excuse me, the Steelers. The Steelers, who knocked them out two years in a row, two-time defending Super Bowl champions, and they beat the Steelers in week one. Um, It should be pointed out that Patriot game is in the middle of a five-game road trip, as I'm looking at this, and you can kind of figure out. You can kind of figure out what that, why that is at this point. Probably because the A's are in the playoffs, right? Well, the A's, well, the A's weren't in the playoffs, but they probably couldn't they figure that out. They thought they would be, yeah. They, they might be, yeah. So they then, you know, they get hammered by New England, but then they continue to, to run through everybody else. Um, you know, there's a, a really interesting anecdote in that America's game that I honestly didn't know. So they go into the second to last game of the year against week 13 against Cincinnati. If they lose, the Raiders have already clinched home field. This is, I think this is still in the era of four. I don't know. I think, was it 78? They went to five teams. For the, with a wild card, with a second wild card team. For the playoffs. Yeah, it was later. You know, they probably did it when they expanded the season to 16, if I had to guess. Which was 78. Yeah, that Um, that makes sense. I can't swear to it, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, let me, I'll, I'll see if I can find that. But, um, so. What happened was the uh, if the Raiders had lost, the Bengals would have clinched the division. It would have eliminated Pittsburgh. It would have eliminated the two-time defending Super Bowl champions, the team that the Raiders cannot beat. And the Raiders said, you know what? To hell with this. And they <laughs> went out and they destroyed Cincinnati in that game. Well, they, didn't, they beat them. 35 to 20, but I think it was not even that close for most of the game. So they hammered Cincinnati. They eliminated Cincinnati by beating the Bengals. They put Pittsburgh in the playoffs. So, you know, not that they would. And the interesting the thing I wanted to bring up to jump ahead a little is I had never known that story, but it added color to something I've known for that the, will stick in my mind as a giant fan forever with John that, which was in 2007. Uh, that week 17 game where the Giants um, played the Patriots and the Giants were locked into the number five seed, but the Patriots were 15 and up. And Tom Coughlin played all of his guys. The Giants shook the hell out of the Patriots, but the Patriots ultimately won 38 35. You didn't know at the time what was coming from that. But that night, John Madden had left a message on Tom Coughlin's answering machine, basically saying, like, I'm so proud of like you. And, you know, I've seen. Uh, you know, I heard all the people saying, oh, he shouldn't play his guys. He should worry about his team. That's not football. That's not winning. That's not how you build. Like, you know, um, and I just kind of, as I'm watching this thing on the 76 years, I'm like, oh, there's kind of a tie in there that I never really thought about before. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for that psychologically. It's not just sort of the silly, well, you know, you should just play hard no matter what that, I mean, that, that can be a little bit overblown, but I do think, I mean, what was it, the Colts the one year? They rested their guys for the last game. Might have even been for the last two games, and then they lost to the Jets in the playoffs, which nobody and, should ever lose to the Jets in the playoffs. And so, the Jets, were the had they kept their starters in that game in Week 16, they would have beaten the Jets. The that's Jets right. That's um, right. So, anyway, they the Raiders get into the playoffs. Um, their division round matchup is against those same New England Patriots who hold the only victory over them that year. Yeah. They beat New England 24 to 21. They were actually down big in this game. They had to come back and 
win. They were down 21 to 10. And the, the story they tell in this game, they were helped by a roughing the passer call. The Oakland Raiders, who were the most penalized team in the league, some deserved, some on reputation, probably more of it deserved than they would care to admit, um, are helped by a, a clear roughing the passer call. But it was a penalty. They ultimately end up winning the game. They go to the AFC championship game. And here are the Steelers. But this is a role reversal. This is the Raiders year. Yeah. And and they roll over Pittsburgh 24 to 7. Um, you know, let's be honest, by this point, this was we're going into the year of the Vikings. This was their fourth appearance in the first 10 Super Bowls. They'd gotten wrecked so far in three of them. This would be no different. The AFC championship game, much like 15, 16 years later, where the 49ers and the Cowboys was the real Super Bowl. This was the real Super Bowl. Um, the Vikings basically lose to every great AFC team once. The Chiefs, the Dolphins, Pittsburgh, now the Raiders. <laughs> yep. Um, so this brings me to Madden. And I had a quote from earlier when we were talking about the, the guys in the locker room. Madden said, football players are like artists. We don't want them to play like robots. Um, so they, they've they talked about his pregame speeches and and by all accounts his players really liked him but a lot of them would kind of um a lot of them would kind of tune out his post game so this is the um the Raiders beat the Steelers his players loved him though they often made fun of him behind his back for his pregame pep talks word salads that when carefully dissected didn't actually make sense so there's great anticipation for what Madden might say before his most important game he talked for two minutes he said don't worry about the horse being blind. Just load the wagons, which still causes perplexed side eyes from his old Raiders. Um, but his closing line was clear enough. Gentlemen, this is going to be the single biggest event in any of your lives. As long as you win, go get them. The Raiders hammered the Vikings 32 to 14. And John Madden, after years and years of losing the conference championship game, as his championship. They carry him off the field. Sort of. Sort of. And what actually happens is that there's a cameraman on the ground trying to get like, you know, the the up picture, you know, where you're, you're shooting up from the ground. But in one of the players trips over this guy and they kind of like Madden he doesn't fall to the ground like, you know, flat. But like, you know, he's you know, he kind of stumbles and then all of a sudden he's he's not on their shoulders anymore. He's standing on the ground. But the the perception is, is that he's too fat for him to. <laughs> bring bring into the locker room on their shoulders this super bowl is in california it's in southern california it's at the rose bowl but still in the same state and comparatively close for the raiders and close to very close to where five years from there then their future laid but um yeah they uh so they they win he gets a super bowl um 77 they go 11 and 3 they get back to the AFC championship game. And this time they lose it to a totally different team. And that's the Denver Broncos who are running a, uh, riding a real wave kind of out of nowhere to the Super Bowl. Um, 78. He's got one more year in him. He coaches in 78 against the, uh, or they only go nine and seven. It's the first 16 game season. He misses the playoffs for, I believe only the second time. 71 being the only other year they missed the playoffs. 
Um, and he decides even at his sort of young age that he's had enough. Um, he announces his retirement on January 4th, 1979, cites a troublesome ulcer and occupational burnout, stating that he's permanently ending his coaching career. And before we move on to the broadcasting, I do want to mention that, that he did. How many guys did that? He stayed retired. Well, I was just thinking about that. You know, how many times did Parcells go back? Dick Vermeil, guy who retired around the same time, you know, late 70s, early 80s, is back 15 years later coaching in the NFL. Lombardi went back, even though he sadly he passed away a couple of years, you know, one year after re- going to the Redskins. All of these guys go back. The one exception is guys who kind of coach one team for 20 years and then get kind of nudged out Landry, Shula, Noel. But most of these guys who retire young, they eventually do go back. And he is the one guy who doesn't. And he even says, he says, I'm not quitting. I'm retiring from coaching. I'll never coach another game again. What is your assessment of him as a coach, more specifically, it took him a long time to get into the Hall of Fame. I don't he was elected in what, like 2008, 2000, 2006. Yeah. I'm kind of skeptical of his Hall of Fame credentials as a coach. He only coaches for how many seasons? That's basically is it 10 seasons, 69 to 78. 10. So that's 10 seasons. 10 seasons. He's got a great winning percentage, but he only wins the one title, which is what you judge coaches on. By the time he gets elected in 06, no disrespect. It feels like it's almost more of a lifetime achievement award for him as opposed to a reflection just on his coaching career. Well, you would think if his coaching credentials were... So, and by, and just to clear it up for anybody's confused, he went in as a coach. That's not a, um, so we're not talking about everything else after that. Um, Correct. For, from a Hall of Fame standpoint, you would think if he was a slam dunk based on his coaching resume, he would have got in a long time before that. It's not like the 70s Raiders were an obscure outfit that took a long time for people to appreciate. Um, I think he probably, I don't know. I mean, he was a per- coach, a perennial contender for 10 years. Does he have a, does Tony Dungy have a stronger case than him? Probably not. I, I would generally say that I, I'm very torn on how many of these coaches that they're letting in recently. I mean, I, I guess I kind of got it with Cower. Jimmy Johnson, I mean, the guy did win back-to-back Super Bowls, and he had, you know, the closest thing to a dynasty that there was in football for a while until the Patriots came into being. But, you know, Tom Flores, Tom Flores won two Super Bowls, but he also had some years with the Seattle Seahawks where his teams were just god-awful, terrible, 2-14, 6-10, 6-10. I think that's what they say keeps Seifert out. 
is that one in 15 team he was with Carolina. Carolina, yeah, plus his tenure as a broadcaster. Look it up on YouTube. Look up George Seifert, uh, broadcaster. It was not good. <laughs> I mean, that shouldn't keep him out no, of the Hall of being Fame. Fac- <laughs> being facetious, obviously. But yeah, I kind of, I, I almost feel like you're right. I mean, if, if all these other guys are going to be in, Seifert should be in, especially when if you, I don't know if they factor this in, but the fact that he was a defensive coordinator on three other teams that won the Super Bowl. So, yeah, I'm skeptical of a bunch of guys of the last 30 or 40 years and their coaching credentials as far as being in the Hall of Fame. And Madden is one of them. It's not something I'm going to lose any sleep over, but I don't feel as if, you know, I don't feel that if somebody were to argue that Madden shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame, I would not argue. The only other thing I would add about his Hall of Fame credentials is apparently, and I get this firsthand from the guy in a Maybe I'll put his name in the show notes. When I was at the uh, the PFRA, the Pro Football Researchers Association convention, with a few of my fellow podcasters, uh, Joe Ziemba and and Darren Hayes, and uh, the head of the Pro Football Researchers Association, George Bozica, who, while he does not have a podcast, is sort of a a friend of the Sports History Network, and speaking to the head librarian of the Hall of Fame, talking about how. Anytime they would hold a meeting of, of Hall of Famers, he would hang up the, you know, hang up the phone from the the meeting, and then John Madden would be calling him, saying, "You need to get this person involved. You need to call Ron Wolf. Ron Wolf has a good perspective on this." And so, Madden was a guy I think who was an asset to the Hall of Fame community as a Hall of Famer, even if maybe his credentials were a little bit on the fence. So. When push comes to shove, given his love for football and all of the guys that he'd interacted with as a player, or not as a player, but as a coach, as a broadcaster, as sort of an elder statesman of football, I think it was a good thing for the Hall of Fame that John Madden was a part of it. But I kind of am on the fence about his credentials. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Um, So are you ready to turn the page here? Yes, his broadcasting career. And the other thing, one of the things that I saw when I was watching the Football Life documentary, he didn't really have a lot of respect for the media, for broadcasters. He was sort of ambiguous about jumping headfirst into this broadcasting world. So he starts in 1979 at CBS. His first couple of years, he's not working the top games. It's not till 81 that he's paired with Summerall. And Here's a story from right before he did his first game ever. Um, he's meeting, he's doing, meeting with the production crew. And we should admit, you know, the NFL is certainly big business in the late 70s, but it's not what it is now or what it even was by 1989. In terms Correct. Of TV and the networks. And a lot of times the media aspect of the NFL, because there's so many fewer games, especially broadcasting, was sort of like part-time for guys who did other sports that had more games. Um, so... They're, he's meeting with the production crew. They're laying out the schedule. And he said, when do we watch the team's practice? They said, we don't do that. He said, why not? I'm going to be talking about these guys for three hours this weekend. I want to see them up close. They explained that really wasn't how things worked. Um, they told him they could get film from the TV games of the team from earlier in the season. He said that wasn't good enough. They said, we sit down with the PR people from both teams and get a download of both teams. That ought to work. No, Madden said, I'll talk to the coaches. From that day forward, Madden's broadcast teams went to practice, spoke directly with players and coaches, and were given the same film that coaching staff used. Within six months, it had become standard practice for TV crews. And if you think about it, 
It's a guy who's less than at this point, he had been a coach the year before. Um, you know, this is 1979. Two years earlier, he'd won a Super Bowl. He's unlikely to get the hi hat from a lot of these coaches, maybe the Steelers, but other than that, <laughs> they but, partner him. Now, do you know who he does his audition game with? No. So before they would hire him to do this kind of lesser tier, you know, he's on like the D or the E team. He does you know, his I did first, a lot of giant games. Yes, yeah, seriously. <laughs> Terrible giants in the late 70s. So his audition, what he was charged with was they were basically were I think they I don't know if they did it live or they were just showed a tape. This wasn't something that was aired, but it was him and the play by play guy kind of, you know, auditioning to do the game, you know, to show if Madden could hack it as a broadcaster. The guy auditioned was Bob Costas. So Costas is doing play by play. And Madden is doing the color commentary and Costas later jokes that, you know, in this small little booth, Madden takes up 80 percent because Costas is a very tiny guy and Madden is a very big guy. But he gets the job, like you said, he kind of and he's partnered with a bunch of guys in 79 and 80. But then in 81, they put him with Pat Summerall and Pat Summerall. God, by the way, do you want me? I have some of the guys he did games with that year. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. So in 79, I, and there are some not good teams in here, but so he's he first couple of games, he's partnered with a guy named Frank Gleber. Never heard of him. In week three, the game is in Oakland. So he's the third man in the booth with Summerall and Brookshire. Brookshire. Okay. Brookshire, Tom Brookshire. Yeah. Do- Dick Stockton, Lindsey Nelson. He does a game with Pat Summerall uh, a little later. Gary Lindsey Bigger. Nelson, by the way, is a. Hall of Fame broadcaster in his own right. Didn't he do the Mets for a long time, Lindsey Nelson? And then it seems like all of the 1980s season he was with. He was with Gary Bender in the regular season. And then in the 81 playoffs, or excuse me. 80 early, playoffs. No, 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 no. In the, early in the 81 season, it's not till October he's paired with Summerall. The first four weeks of the 81 season, you know who he's paired with? Is it Vin Scully? Two of these are giant games. Yeah. Vin Scully. Yeah. So he he, he would have called the LT's first couple of games with Vin Scully. So, yeah. So, by the way, Lindsey Nelson, yes, was in 62. He was hired by the Mets and did broadcasts for the Mets until the sometime in the 70s. Lindsey Nelson. So he's a Hall of Fame baseball broadcaster. Yeah, you're right. He does games with Scully. Summerall and Brookshire was the lead CBS team of the 70s. Did a number of Super Bowls. Brookshire, who had been a he was a player, Brookshire, for the Eagles during the 60s. I believe he was a what was his position? He was a quarterback for the Eagles and was on that team in 60 that we I mentioned earlier that beat the Lombardi Packers in the the championship game, two-time pro baller. His number is actually retired by the Eagles as number 40, um, Tom Brookshire. The thing that I remember the most, because I watched the football life documentary of Summerall, is apparently Summerall and Brookshire like to, uh, you know, do a little bit of the drinking before uh, (laughs) the night before the games, which Summerall later, you know, had some issues with alcohol abuse and 
went into rehab, that type of thing. But they were like best friends, Summerall and Brookshire in the 70s. So Summerall had a, a legendary broadcasting partner before he got with Madden. They finally put Madden and Summerall together in 81 as the lead CBS broadcasting team. Now, the way it works today is that and it's different now because basically every network has a playoff game and there's now this extra round and all that crap. But the way it worked basically up until even like six or seven years ago was that in the divisional round, the second round, you'd have two games on one network, two games on the other network. And then each team, each network would have its lead it's had, it would have its A and its B broadcast teams doing those games. That'd be four games. Then you'd get to the NFC and AFC championship games, and you'd have each team. I'm sorry, each network would have its lead team, its A team, and then you'd get to the Super Bowl, and whatever network had it would have its number one broadcast team doing the game. And so, whatever league that had had the previous broadcaster would this let me rephrase this whatever broadcast team doing the super bowl would also have done one of the conference championship games the week before because they were the a team so you know in recent years it's always you know buck and aikman for fox or whoever the lead cbs team would be you know nance and romo or nance and whoever came before romo but in 81 as a consolation they give the Super Bowl to Madden and Summerall, but they give the NFC Championship game to the B team for CBS, which is Vin Scully and Hank Stram. So the 81 NFC Championship game with the Montana to Clark famous catch is actually done by the B team. It's done by Vin Scully and Hank Stram. So Vin Scully, in addition to all of his, you know, Guy started broadcasting the Dodgers when Jackie Robinson was on the team and left when Clayton Kershaw was on the team. He also did the 81 NFC Championship game, one of the most famous NFL games and moments of all time. Yeah, you, did, you look and they did a round. Um, you know, they, they did the wild card round. They did the, the divisional round and then they had the Super Bowl that year, the 49ers Bengals Super Bowl. And I think that's the... Um, the thing to keep in mind, we talked a lot with him as the coach about the AFC in the seventies, which was the premier conference. You think about, he jumps to CBS, which at the time is the NFC conference or the NFC channel in 1979, but becomes the a broadcaster in 1981, right? As things are switching. Mm -hmm. So he instantly is suddenly in the conference. That is the place to be. You got the 49ers early on. You got the Cowboys as the decade goes on. You've got Washington pretty early as the decade goes on, specifically the NFC East, the Giants. You get the Bears, who I know are in the Central. Then later on in the 80s, it's the Eagles. The best teams in the NFC are in, or the best teams in the NFL for the most part in the 80s are in the NFC. And Madden and Summerall are calling their games. Yeah, Redskins too. That whole NFC East. He probably yeah. oh, did you? I'm sorry. Yeah. He probably does an NFC East game. He probably does a game with one of the NFC East teams. You know, two thirds of the weeks between Philly early, Giants and Washington mid 80s, and then as the 90s are dawning, you got Dallas. 
So just out of curious, so I pulled up the 86 season, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to guess every one of these is either the NFC or the Bears, right? NFC East or the Bears. NFC East, yeah. So 86, week one, Rams, Bears, Eagles, Washington, 49ers, Rams, Giants, Raiders, Bears, Bengals, Cowboys, Broncos, Redskins, Cowboys, Giants, Seahawks, Saints, Jets appears to be out of nowhere. Um, you know what that probably Jets, was? Because they were in New York the week. Because he was in New York, and then we should we we should talk about that we, whole we, thing. We, well, yeah, yeah. They were in New York the next week against Dallas. Uh, Dallas against the Giants. Mm. So Giants they stayed in New York for three weeks. Yep. Is what happened. Yeah. So it was basically the NFC or the Bears. Or is the NFC East or the Bears for the most part? A couple of West Coast games, which is where he lived, so it made sense. But do you want to talk about that now? It's a decent segue into it. Yeah, why don't we talk about that? So he, at some point in his early broadcasting career, this is not when he's coaching, but it's in his early broadcasting career, he is on an airplane. And it might have even been part of his broadcast career. It might have even been just like personal travel. I don't even know. You know, I don't, I don't remember the specifics of it, but he's on an airplane. And as some people do, he got very panicky on this airplane. Most people, and I think this is what I'm really digressing here, but most people who have sort of a fear of flying, it's not necessarily that the plane is going to crash. It's that they have this sort of intense claustrophobia that they just can't deal with. And I think that's kind of what Madden has. So he says to himself, he says, if I get off this plane and I'm okay, I'm never going to get on an airplane again. And he doesn't. And for a lot of his career, and as a guy who loves trains, I can sympathize with this for a lot of the eighties. It's not the famous Madden cruiser. It's he takes Amtrak. He takes Amtrak from city to city. And he's treated very well and rides Amtrak. And I think at some point in the late 80s, early 90s, he gets this Madden Cruiser bus. I got it it here. It says he moved from traveling by train to by bus for the 87 season. His initial deal with Greyhound for the Madden Cruiser was a customized $500,000 bus with all the operating expenses covered for three years and a driver on 24-hour call. And the obvious issue is that the bus can take you right to where you want to go. The train, you got to get picked up. You know, if you mm-hmm. if you got to go to Giant Stadium, you pull in the Penn Station or I guess, you know, Newark or wherever, you still got to get picked up and driven. So from a just a logistical point of view, the bus makes more sense, but it becomes part of his persona and mystique. Yeah, as the years go on, it becomes um, more and more customized. For a long time in the 90s, it was sponsored by Outback. I remember was, that. Yeah, you know, it would it would have the different you. They did not go, uh, you know, they did not go low key with the John Madden bus. Let's say that. So um, it's important to realize, like they become Madden is a, is a is a very unique broadcaster, especially for the time. And like I said, I don't want to oversimplify the guy, but he's one of the first guys who really uses the telestrator. You know, if you watch. Um, Games. I did the Super Bowl 21, the Giants Broncos, and you see him just drawing on the screen like, oh, you see, Zeke Mowat's going to come here and he's going to do what's called a rub and he's going to hit the linebacker and then he's going to go out there and he's drawing on the screen. And that really wasn't done at the time. It's not really even done that much now. It's done a little a little bit, but not as much. Um, and then, um, you know, I think what would happen was he would he would get excited and he would say he'd be like, oh, and you see here, you see uh 
Carl Banks just comes up and fills the hole and, and Ernest Binder is coming up the middle and boom, Banks drills him. And he would just, he would get excited about things. And that's where the booms and the thwacks. And I never got the sense that it was a put on. I think with him, it was sort of, I don't think it was a put on. I think he was a guy who loved life. I mean, how many people in life get to do exactly what they want to do for their whole life? And he loves football and he's around football and he's doing games and he's, you know, the guy probably didn't have to do anything he didn't want to do after about 1983. So that, that, that leads to a very happy-go-lucky type of individual. I think that he found things within games, even if they were not specific to the action on the field, that just made him happy. Whether that was, you know, Super Bowl 21, which you and I have both watched a hundred times when they're getting ready to dump the Gatorade on parcels and he's diagramming where the one bucket is and the other bucket is. I remember there was a guy by the name of Steve Wallace, who was a tackle for the 49ers in the mid nineties. Do you remember this guy? No, he was an offensive tackle. And his thing is that he'd had some sort of a head trauma earlier in his career. So in addition to his helmet, he had like another snap on type of helmet. They tried that for a couple of years in the nineties with the little like hat there. Yeah. Like yeah. 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 And Madden just got such a kick out of this guy. He's like, Oh, he's got his hat on. And it was just <laughs> the, the, just the unadulterated sort of enjoyment of what was going on. And that translates probably, and we'll probably talk about this in a few minutes that translates into, you know, his love of the food and all that type mm-hmm. of thing. He just, you're right. I don't think it was a put on. I think it was maybe a conscious decision to emphasize certain aspects of his personality over others. But I think that, yeah, he, he cultivated that image in a way Mm. that was genuine. And I also think it's worth noting that he and Summerall are probably the last team. First of all, Summerall very different as a play-by-play announcer. If you listen to those watch games that Summerall did, Summerall probably speaks less than any NFL play-by-play announcer in the last 40 or 50 years. He is very, very, very understated, which matched up well with Madden. So, And he's a former player. Former players, by and large, in this day and age, don't do play-by-play, especially not in football, especially not on networks. Mm-hmm. So it was a very different kind of broadcast team by modern standards. But it worked, I think, because Madden had such a passion for the game and for the players on the field. Yeah, well, I think the the thing with Madden, and this is a thing a lot of guys can't pull off. He came to it with the knowledge of a coach and a guy who spent his whole life around football. But he conveyed it in a way that the fan would want to know. Too often when you hear like, oh, we're going to do a broadcast for the fans, you think like, oh, so they're not going to give us any useful information. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just going to be nonsense. Like every, I haven't watched a lot of these, but anytime there's like, oh, well, um, you know, uh, some streaming service is going to do one game a week on whatever show for baseball. And it's going to be a broadcast geared to the fan. And I'm like, so they're just, the whole thing's going to be about different food at the ballpark and stuff like that. Who's and trending on Twitter. And yeah. Or you get, you know, the other end of the spectrum, which is guys who really can break down the game technically, but not in an accessible way. You know, um, I want to know what 
defense the other team is in and I want to know how that impacts what you know the where the corner is what his responsibility on the field is but I don't need to know six different things about progression you know what I mean like it's a balance and I think he did that really really well um since you brought up Super Bowl 21 I wanted to mention this um this is the thing I was talking about before Right before Super Bowl 20, this is again from that ESPN article. Right before Super Bowl 21 in 1987, it was January of 87, between the Broncos and Giants, producer Michael Frank was in charge of getting tape of both teams. So he got the broadcasts of both conference title games. Madden was furious. He wanted the coaches film. Somebody got a hold of the NFC title game tape, so they just needed the AFC tape. Frank was handed the unenviable task of going to the Giants team hotel to get a copy of the tape from the New York Giant coaches they were using to scout the Broncos. When he got there, he was ushered into a conference room. After a few minutes, he heard footsteps and in walked Bill Parcells. You really screwed up, huh? Parcells said. Frank, <laughs> said yes, he just, Frank said, yes, he just needed a copy of the coaches film for the Broncos. Parcells sighed. We only have one copy. He, he said and just stared at Frank. And then he said, you know what? I'd do anything for John. Take this. Um, <laughs> so, and then they talk about here where Parcells had, you know, struggled in 82, 83, especially. He'd gotten 12, 19, 1 in his first two years in New York. Really, they should just say he was bad at 83. By 84, they were fine. Yeah. Um, anxious Giant fans had started to call for his head. Madden spoke up consistently to say that Parcells was going to be a really good coach, that he needed time. Parcells thought it made a huge difference in keeping the temperature of his seat to a reasonable level. Frank handed him the film with a vow to protect it on his life. It said on his way back to the production team's hotel, Frank started to suspect Madden had called Parcells and put him up to it. I think maybe he was just giving me like, do, are we really to believe that even in 1986, they had one game tape of the team they were about to play in the Super Bowl? Like, yeah. I mean, game tape 19... had been a thing since the fifties. So yeah, it was it wasn't 1938. Like, <laughs> but that, that was just a nice story. And and while we're on the subject of sort of the 80s, because we will, I think, make the turn to the 90s in a minute. Um, this is a story. This is the story I teased before. Um, well, actually, two of them. First one is it talks about how Madden and they were doing tons of NFC East games in the 80s. So he got an apartment in New York City. Um says this is the two stories one morning madden and his agent sandy montag were having breakfast in the lobby of the ritz carlton in chicago as they ate a man rolled up to their table he had a thick british accent and he mentioned to madden that in the uk they usually were limited to one nfl broadcast per week and it rotated between the networks i only watch the games you do john the man said madden used to fans approaching him thanked him and waved goodbye that guy had big glasses and a big attitude, Madden remarked after he was out of earshot. It was Elton John. <laughs> Good God. And here, here's the even weirder one. I will skip a part of this because I think it'll, um, uh, this goes back to he got the apartment in New York City. He uh, had actually bought the uh, Gilda Radner's old apartment in that complex. Mm-hmm. Within a few years, without even trying, Madden had become the complex's mascot. The Madden cruiser would pull up out front and singer Roberta Flack would hustle to get on board for a few minutes. Sometimes Madden would hang out in the courtyard and go through notes. And on more than one occasion, Fox crew members, this says it's the 80s, so it would be CBS, really, um, would show up to meet with Madden and he'd be sitting with a friend and her son. The woman would always say hello and excuse herself. Any guesses? 
I've heard this story. Wasn't it like Diana Ross or something? Even more bizarre. Even less likely. Was it Jackie Kennedy? Um, you're really close uh, in one regard. So the apartment he got a place in was the Dakota. That that doesn't help. Yoko Ono. <laughs> God. But again, sort of could that. You imagine col- what, could, yeah, could you imagine what a conversation between Yoko Ono and John Madden was about? <laughs> <laughs> but it shows that he was a guy who knew how to speak to people that weren't just, you know, linebackers, coaches. And real quick, when you said Jackie Kennedy, the reason I said close, obviously, is because the assassination of their husbands. And yes, exactly. like, like, how is Jackie Kennedy like Yoko Ono? But go ahead. I'm sorry. The presence of Madden with the NFC in the 80s. It's part of it. You know, I I'm looking here at sort of who did the Super Bowls for NBC and it, it, Monday Night Football is kind of its own phenomenon. But in those days, in those days, I don't even know in the 80s. I don't know that there were any other games beyond just Monday Night Football. There was I don't even know in the 80s. Was there a Sunday night game in the 1980s? I want to say that started in the very late eighties. Um, yeah, I think and that's I, right. And I'm pretty sure. Yeah, let me, I'll, I'll check when it started. Um, well, I know that know, there so was. The, the, I know that there was one in the 1990s because I was watching an old Giant game from the 90s, from the first game of the year in 1990 with the Giants, and it was on Sunday Night Football on TNT, and Larry King was on the halftime show, which was weird, but. Um, so it says, while ABC had been airing occasional Sunday night NFL games, usually one per season under its Monday night football banner since 1978, it's part of the 1986 USFL season. Inaugural season of ESPN Sunday night NFL was in 1987. Oh, okay. So it was it was a little earlier than I thought. But even so, you got one game on Monday night football. You got one game on Sunday night, apparently, which I'm sure was a terrible game most years. But you're really talking about the NBC and CBS the same way it's been since 1960. And it's Dick Enberg and Merlin Olson for most of the 80s. And that's a competent team. But the marquee broadcast team is clearly Summerall and Madden. So in the NFC, you've not only got the best broadcast team. You've got the teams that are winning. You've got the Hall of Fame coaches in the 80s, Walsh, Gibbs, Parcells. You have basically most of Ditka. You've got basically most of the marquee cities. I mean, you think about who's winning in the 80s in the NFC, New York, Chicago, D.C., San Francisco. And you think about the teams they're going up against. Denver, which is still, you know, Denver then is not at the population level that Denver is now. Cincinnati, which no offense to anybody in Cincinnati, is more of a second tier type city. So, you know, Buffalo, obviously, in the 90s, which is, you know, a a small American city as American cities go. There's all these reasons why the NFC is considered the, you know, sort of the blue chip conference uh, 
of the 80s and 90s. And the fact that they're winning all the Super Bowls is obviously the big part of that. But the, I think the presence of Summerall and Madden is an important piece of that. Yeah. So let's turn the page to the 90s. Um, still a lot of the same. Um, you know, the NFC is still dominating the landscape. The rise of the Dallas Cowboys is, you know, the big part of the early 90s from a football standpoint. Madden and Summerall are now in Dallas quite a bit. And we're about to see a seismic shift in television sports, specifically the NFL. Um, And we're hoping to do an episode specifically on Fox Sports later in the year. Okay. Yep, we will. As early as 1986, um, Fox is... uh, is interested, you know, Fox is set up as a network and they realize at the time you're going to be a big network. You got to have sports. Um, in 1987, which was Fox's full first year on the air, there was some back and forth between ABC and the NFL about ABC renewing Monday night football. Fox made an offer, uh, for the same amount. Um, NFL didn't see Fox as a major player just yet which they probably weren't in 1987, to be honest, uh, passed on that. Um, involved in the USFL for a little while. Um, and then six years after its first attempt, Fox, many people expect the NFL would relieve, receive less money than $3.6 billion for four years that the networks had paid in 1990. Knowing that it would need to likely bid considerably more than the incumbent networks, Fox bid $1.58 billion on a four-year contract for the broadcast rights to the NFC, exceeding CBS's bid by more than $100 million a year. NFC was considered the more desirable contract, which everybody knew. Fox lacked credibility among viewers, et cetera. So they land it for what will take effect for the 1994 season. Um, so this, it's a, this is the first... CBS is going to lose football for the first time since 1956. And and that Fox was a big now, deal at the time. Yeah, it had been for, for as long as anyone who had been, has been watching football on television up until that point. CBS had the NFC, Fox, or uh, NBC had the AFC. Go back mm-hmm. to when it was the AFL and the NFL. Yep. So, you know, that's announced, I don't know, probably sometime during the 1993 season, maybe even a little earlier, that Fox is going to take over. And they, uh, John Madden, uh, joked when he joined the network that it should be called Fox Sport because the only sport we have at Fox was football, NFL football. Um, <laughs> Fox the, Sport uh, as opposed to Fox Sports. Yes, they get Summerall as well. Terry Bradshaw comes over to be the host of the Fox show, which he's still a role he still has today. Dick Stockton and Matt Millen come over to be the number two team. Uh, James Brown moves to the studio. So we'll talk more about this, but you know, it's easy to look now and go like, well, of course, Madden and Summerall went over. Where were they going to go? But they could have gone a few places. They could have gone to NBC. I'm sure if they wanted to call still called Sunday, you know, AFC games, they would have switched. They could have gone to, I don't know what they would have done if Monday night football, but you bet if Madden and Summerall were seriously interested, they would have at least made overtures in that direction. Um, I think if I think in 1994, if Madden and Summerall wanted Monday Night Football, they would have found another role for Al Michaels, which is funny to think about because Al Michaels is a legendary play-by-play guy. But Madden and Summerall, I think, would have taken precedence. And I think that I remember, and I mean, this is the part where I remember I was what 11, 12 years old. But 
the fact that they went over lent an air of consistency to the whole thing where it was okay when the 49ers play the Cowboys for the third time this year in the NFC championship game, it's going to be Madden and Summerall doing the game again. And, you know, Fox was the network of the Simpsons and in living color and married with children. It was not, I mean, these days Fox is basically just the fourth broadcast network. Now they don't do some of the Fox doesn't have some of the sort of, TV shows that appeal to the people in their 60s. You know, they don't have the CSIs and those types of shows, but Fox is much more like the other networks today. When Fox got football, it was almost as if football had gone to MTV. It was a very different thing. People were, people didn't know what to make of it. And so I think, I think also you have to think about, okay, it's, it's a network network. The word network has almost entirely been lost now, but what it means is there's different affiliates that carry Fox in their primetime lineup. I don't even know what Fox's national clearances were in the late eighties. I'm sure by 94, when they got the NFL, it was damn near hundred percent of the markets. Yeah. Cause the NFL it, wouldn't have given it otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe there was somewhere in Idaho that didn't have one. Summerall yeah. and Madden were nobody's idea. Uh, I, I think there was probably a fear, and maybe not even a fear, but just maybe like a curiosity. What are they going to do with the games? You know, are they going to be making off color? Is this going to be like the XFL six or seven years later, where they're doing all sorts of weird off color things during the game? Or is it going to be like some of the things you see today, or, you know, like what is it, Nickelodeon that does the, the broadcast of the games? I think there was a, whether it was a fear or just a curiosity of like, okay, are they going to do like weird stuff during the games? And then you bring on Madden and you bring on Summerall and you realize that, no, they just want to do football the way it's been done for decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk more about some specific Fox things, but you know, so Madden and Summerall largely continue in the same way. Um, I think Fox maybe provides a little bit of a new sheen to them. I think the thing to talk about in the nineties, and, and again, this gets reduced to a little bit of a joke, but obviously you have the Packers or you have the Cowboys of the 49ers starting at about 93, the green Bay Packers get good. at yeah. And I think this has been glossed over that really from the time Vince Lombardi retired in 1967 to 1993, the Packers were, were a joke. They were, you know, what people say, Oh, what, if the NFL didn't have the current salary structure, the Packers would be second-class citizens. Throughout the seventies and eighties, they really were. They Good made point. the playoffs in eighty. They made the playoffs in eighty-two in that weird strike year, and you know they probably won six games or something like that. I think, I think they that's did. exactly I think right. Six, I think they went six and five. Um, but other than that, they were you know they were a fourth-place team. That thank God they were in the same division as Tampa Bay. Most um, they uh, you know were not a factor. For 25 years. And then the Packers get good. And even though Vince Lombardi really earns him, even though John Madden really has nothing to do with the Packers, he grew up in California. He coached the Raiders in the AFC. Somehow it seemed like a fit that he would be calling a bunch of games at Lambeau field. And the fact that Brett Favre kind of became, and eventually it did become a little bit too much, but he became sort of 
if you ask me, picture John Madden right now, who's he talking about? I would say Brett Favre. One of the things that I watched was uh, the, and I want to get into this obviously in a couple minutes, but the, the all Madden team from 96, which is the Packers first year in the Super Bowl. And it's a, one of the features of that episode of that show is Madden doing an interview with Brett Favre. So you're right. The Packers thing, Madden, Madden idolized Lombardi. There's a, you know, in one of his special video clips, he goes to Lombardi's house and sits in the basement of Lombardi's house. And mm-hmm. yeah, so that's absolutely right. And there's just also this kind of strange full circle thing and that Madden had coached against Lombardi in his first year as an NFL assistant. And then here he is 30 years later doing all these games with the Packers in green Bay. I have a couple different directions that I want to go in before we kind of put his broadcast career to bed. What, what, what was your next point that you sort of wanted to make about his broadcast career? Cause I have a couple different things. Well, you know, you, we could talk about the old man team. Um, I guess if we wanted to, we could say, okay, we get to Oh one and it's his last year with, uh, uh Merrill. Mm-hmm. Um, it's his last year with Fox, which they, didn't really necessarily know at the time, but Summerall's going to retire. And you have 9-11, which happens. Um, and the story I wanted to, to bring up here about, I'll just read this from this ESPN article real quick. Uh, on September 11th, 2001, Peggy Fleming, the famous skater, uh, was giving a speech in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, when news of a terrorist attack broke. Um, she was at a breast cancer awareness fundraiser. She connected with her agent who told her there was no way she's getting back to California anytime soon. She didn't think she could handle the cross-country drive by herself. She stayed in a hotel in Wilkes-Barre. Her agent called her with a surprise. John Madden, another client from the agency, was on his way to California, back from New York in his cruiser. He offered to pick her up. On September 17th, the cruiser pulled in. Fleming was there, jokingly stuck her thumb up. The doors flew open and Madden stuck his head out and yelled, get in. They spent the next 52 hours watching coverage of the attacks and talking about winning a gold medal, surviving breast cancer, their families, everything. It was such a scary, uncertain time. I didn't know what the future held, but I had my big new buddy, John Madden. I felt so safe on that bus. She said she was blown away by the efficiency of the cruiser. Two drivers alternated for the entire trip with only occasional stops to eat or stretch their legs. They put up a curtain at night and made up the fold-out couch for her to sleep. Madden would say goodnight and sleep in his bedroom. At one point, she said, I want to earn my way on this trip. So Madden told her he, she could come on his weekly radio show from the cruiser and that he's going to get out in Nebraska and scrub the windows so she would help him, help him out. So when they got to Omaha, they got out, grabbed a bite and started washing the uh, washing the windows of the bus. He bought her a hat because she said her hair had been a mess because obviously, you know, things were all. Uh, and then she said she. um a few days later, the bus pulled up in Pleasanton. Fleming's husband was there waiting for her. Soon it was time to go. Madden shook hands. She said she still puts that cowboy hat on from time to time, a remind, reminder of an unlikely new friend. So that's just kind of a nice story. So I want to talk for a minute here about some of the Super Bowls he did, because in his broadcasting career, he does one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. He does 11 Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. Most of them are not particularly good. He and now most of the Super Bowls in the 80s and 90s are not particularly good. He does 21 when the Giants beat the Broncos. He'd done 16, which was the 49ers' first first championship. And then 18 would have been that was when the Raiders 
uh, you know, fittingly enough, the last AFC championship, AFC Super Bowl for about 15 years when the Raiders beat the Redskins in the um, 1983 season. Does the Giants over the Broncos in 21, 24, the uh, the 49ers beat the Broncos 26, which to 10. <laughs> yeah, 55 to 10. Exactly. 26, which is a, another Washington blowout of Buffalo. And then for a number of reasons, he doesn't do another Super Bowl for five years. And so, oh, yeah, because of the network switchovers and stuff, all that stuff. Yeah. So he doesn't do it. He misses the whole cowboy dynasty as far as Super Bowls are concerned. Mm-hmm. 31, he does the Packers and the Patriots, which is an OK Super Bowl, but not a great one compared to recent games. It was a great game. <laughs> Two years later, he does the Falcons and the Broncos in 33. Do you know what my main memory from that Super Bowl is from a broadcast point of view? No. It involves Pat Summerall. I forget. It's something funny about like, because it's, it's something I forget. It's, you have to like read the halftime show or something. He has to read the halftime show. I don't even know who the lead you know, who sort of the marquee act was for the Super Bowl show, but it was in the late 90s and it was when sort of like big band swing music had gone through this weird renaissance. And, you know, even, you know, one of my favorite bands, the mighty, mighty boss tones was kind of funny, you know, kind of a part of it with a couple of their songs. And there was the scroll. It's it's funny because one of my favorite movies ever is called swingers and the themes of the movie are timeless. Like, you know, it's about a guy going through a breakup and it's one of those like young Hollywood stories. And it's, the themes of it are timeless, but it also takes place in the backdrop of like the 24 months that swing music was on a revival for young hip people in LA. So it's like, it's timeless, but also very untimeless in one regard. So go ahead. So big bad voodoo daddy was one of the, <laughs> the acts and Pat Summerall is listing these, you know, the acts like stay tuned for the Super Bowl 33 halftime show. And at one point he just goes, and Big bad voodoo daddy. <laughs> and so, but anyway, that's another not good Super Bowl. And and by the way, surrounded by two really good Super Bowls, too. The year before was that Bronco Packer game, which would have been mm-hmm. a great game for him to call. Yes. Elway's, Elway finally gets his championship. You know, the Packers defending champions. And then the next year. And he had done, he, how many, he'd done a couple of Elway losses in yeah. the 80s. Yeah, and the next year was that Packer or was that uh, Rams Titans game? Yes, exactly. So in the middle, he gets the most forgettable, boring game. So in thirty six, in Super Bowl thirty six, two thousand one season, his last Super Bowl, his last game with his last game on Fox, his last game with Summerall, and that is the Patriots beating the Rams in Super Bowl thirty six, and. It, that last drive that the Patriots go on when Vinatieri kicks the game-winning field goal, it's famous for really for two reasons related to Madden. First of all, when the Pats get the ball, the first thing he says is that he thinks the Patriots should sit on the ball and play for overtime. And then Brady, in sort of the first great moment of his career, leads them on a drive, proves Madden wrong. Vinatieri kicks the game-winning field goal, and the rest is history. And then the other thing is, in the midst of this Patriots drive, Madden is giving sort of a very heartfelt goodbye to Pat Summerall. He's saying, you know, 
games become seasons and seasons become decades. And, you, you know, you build up a lifetime of memories working with this guy. So that's kind of his farewell to Pat Summerall. And then I, after that Super Bowl, there's kind of a question of what he's going to do next. And I think for a very brief period of time, there was a thought that he was going to stay with Fox and partner with Joe Buck. But he ends up, he leaves Fox. He goes to ABC, does Monday Night Football with Al Michaels. They do another Super Bowl, just as sort of the way the timing plays out. A year later, he's doing the Super Bowl between the Bucks and the Raiders. Again, Which the Raiders. The only terrible game in the sea of good games yeah. in that era. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he does. Or, yeah. Well, the Giants Ravens one was terrible. This so. is true. Uh, and another topic we will likely never cover on the Hello World Sports podcast. So Could he come up randomly. <laughs> good point. We'll have to do another one of those before too long. So he partners with Al Michaels on ABC. They do a couple of Super Bowls in addition to their Monday Night Football due days. And three years later, they do the game where Pittsburgh finally wins a Super Bowl with Cower and Bettis. And when they beat Seattle and then. Well, real quick, it should be pointed out that one interesting aspect of him going to ABC is that for the first time, he's a part of the ESPN umbrella now. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember he would do hits on, I think, Sunday NFL Countdown. Now, he was obviously doing the game the next night, but they would they would break in with him at some, like, you know, wherever he was for the, the Monday night game. And they would do, like, a five to ten minute thing with him on both the Monday night game and, you know, the games that were coming up that afternoon. You know, so after all these years of being this huge figure, this is the first time he's under, like, that umbrella, albeit relatively briefly. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. So he does the Monday Night Football thing for, I think it's about four or five years. And then he leaves. His contract is up. And this is when NBC has just gotten Sunday Night Football from ESPN. It was always Sunday Night ESPN, Monday Night ABC. NBC gets Sunday Night Football, and really what's happening there is that NBC is going to turn Sunday Night Football on NBC into what Monday Night Football on ABC had once been. Sunday Night Football on ESPN had always been sort of the the dregs. You know, I remember even as a kid, we used to joke it was just punts. You turn on these games. Cardinals were on Sunday Night Football a lot. Yeah, the Cardinals would be playing the Houston Oilers, and everybody would just punt. And so... (laughs) You'd watch that, but then Monday Night Football was marquee. That was when the Giants would play the 49ers. That was when Dallas would play the Eagles on Monday night. And they want to turn Monday Night Football into, or they want to turn Sunday Night Football into what Monday Night Football has been. So they signed Madden, but Al Michaels is still under contract to ABC. So there's some questions. Is he going to move to ESPN? Is he going to do Monday Night Football on ESPN? And then they eventually figure out a way to get Michaels and Madden, and it involves uh, Oswald the Rabbit. Look it up. Um, Madden and Michaels end up on Monday night, and then they do another few years on NBC on Sunday nights, and they 
and they end up doing one more Super Bowl. I see that. I'm sorry. They do. Um, yeah. Sorry. One more Super Bowl on NBC. And that's in 2009. That's Madden's last game ever. And that is one of the great Super Bowls of all time. That's the Steelers. Again, the Steelers and Arizona in Super Bowl 43, which is this epic, you know, back and forth game. Really great game. Underrated because of the fact that the Giants Patriots have been the year before. People don't talk as much about that Super Bowl, but 43-08 season is a really good Super Bowl Steelers win another title, and that is the end of the Madden broadcasting career. And I think you, um, when we did the in memoriam, you you'd pull up a list of like which teams Madden had done the most in his career, and he's able to bump up with some of those AFC teams: Pittsburgh, New England, Indy, those types of teams. Because again, he kind of finds himself in a place in the two thousands where he's not married to the NFC and he's able mm. to do games with Brady Manning Roethlisberger, these great quarterbacks of the 21st century. Yeah. I tried to find that again. And for whatever reason I couldn't, um, no surprise. It's a lot of NFC East teams at the top, but yeah, as the, the last five or six years when he was more able to do, and that sort of coincided with a swing back to the AFC, primarily the Patriots, but you also had the Colts and, you know, the Steelers, like you mentioned, where he got to do some of those teams too, where in the past he might've done one Patriot game a year or something like that. Um, I mean, in the past, like had he been doing Fox or CBS, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So um, he was probably most of those years doing zero Patriot games. I mean, I meant that era's Patriot games. Um, so, yeah, he um, he steps down as a broadcaster and, and he, I guess for the most part, he's not really seen or heard from all that much after that. I mean, I think he gets very involved with the Hall of Fame once mm-hmm. he's elected in 06. I think, he you know, he does an occasional radio hit and that type of thing. But you're right. He's not. He's not somebody who stays super active, which I mean, retired broadcasters tend not to, because what else are they going to do? Well, it's interesting, though. He football as a coach, he stayed retired and he stayed retired as a broadcaster. There was no uh, swan songs or anything like that, was there? No, there wasn't. Even somebody like Summerall, who, you know, even after he retired, quote unquote, no one still kind of snuck in, you know, for the next several years to do games when the the need arose for him to do a game. So you're right. He he does he once again sticks to what he has said he's going to do. So we've kind of the chronological thing and we've touched on some of the cultural stuff. Did you have more? So I think we need to talk about the all Madden team because that was the first place where I feel like he really got cultural cachet for lack of a better word. Yeah. It became a, it became a thing guys on teams would talk about. So what it was, was I think, and it was actually the idea of John Robinson, who's childhood coach, childhood friend and USC coach was like, John, you ought to come up with your own all-star team. And he started doing it in 84, I believe was the first year of it. Yep, I see it right here. I got the initial team up, yeah. And what it was was an all-star team of the guys that Madden thought were the best performers of the year. But it was different in that it was, first of all, 
and this I think was part of what made it kind of cool. It was only guys that they had seen play that season. So it had to be somebody that Madden and Summerall had done a game of that year. So it was, as you referenced, it was very heavy on guys from the NFC and particularly the NFC East. So like John Elway would not make the all Madden team all most years. And in fact, I just in prepping for this, there's a few of them that are out there on YouTube. I think like 85, 96, 97, and 01, which was the last one are out there. The actual shows? Yeah, the actual shows. Here are the complete initial selections. And then it's just got 84 and 90. And then 01, right, is last year. Yeah, okay, never mind. There used to be a site, I think it was on ESPN, that had all of them. And I'm sure if I dig deep enough, I could find it. But so they used to do them every year. And it would be mostly NFC guys. A couple things. It was the kind of guys that he liked. So it was like a lot of smash mouth type of guys. And one of the I watched 85 was the earliest one that was on YouTube. He picked seven nose tackles in 1985. <laughs> and he would pick guys that were hard nosed, that were tough, guys that were fat, guys that got muddy, guys that appealed to him. In 1985, he picked Phil McConkey from the Giants because he liked the fact that Phil McConkey would start fights. So he was <laughs> he, it was that type of thing. But it was always so much fun to watch because you think and this is pre-internet. This is before any everybody was always naming their all star team for everything. And it was always the the week between the Super Bowl and the NFC and AFC championship games. So it was a way to get that football fix. And I remember a lot of years watching it and being excited about how many guys on the Giants had made the team. And like in 93, the Giants were good again for the first time in three years. And it was like, oh, this is great. Phil Sims is back on the all Madden team. And Lawrence Taylor is back on the all Madden team. So it really was a big deal for a while. I remember being at a Super Bowl party that our father hosted and listening to some of the guys at the Super Bowl party being like, oh, there's an all Madden guy. There's another all Madden guy. It really meant a lot for a while, especially kind of in like the pre-internet, like 80s and 90s, 80s and early 90s. It was a really big deal. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was sort of like, there was the AFC Pro Bowl team, the NFC Pro Bowl team, and then the All Madden team, which, yeah, it was not. And I think CBS tried to do it a few times. And when CBS got the AFC contract back, and I want to say that was 98, I think they had like the All Iron team with Phil Sims or something like that because they were trying to just do the same thing. Well, they always tried to. I mean, Madden did the thing with the Turducken all those years. Well, and I was going to get to that. Yeah. I guess that's more on the cultural side, but. And then mm-hmm. CBS did whatever it is that they that they did. So it was always a lot of fun. And it was and it, it was always I always wondered why he stopped doing it when he went to ABC and then NBC. I yeah. don't know if it was a copyright thing. I don't know if it was a summer all thing. Maybe he didn't want to do it anymore without summer all. Because I remember in 2002, I'm thinking to myself, like, God, I wonder when they're going to do the all Madden team. They just never did it. So I don't know what the reason was for them not doing it once he left Fox because he did it on CBS. He did it on Fox. But 
it was always, you know, and he would rarely pick kickers. He would rarely pick punters. You know, he was always kind of very particular about it. Uh, in, in this clip is on YouTube. I think it was in 1989. He decided that in addition to a coach, the team needed a manager. So he picked Bobby the Brain Heenan. <laughs> Did you watch this video? I watched the clip you gave me. Yeah. 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 But it's funny because even he selects Bobby the Brain Heenan. And then it, in one of the arenas that the WWF was in, Heenan went out on that, you know, you know, that like uh, interview podium, stage yeah. on that interview podium that I always had with Mean Gene or whoever. Platform, and Heenan yeah. basically, I'm sorry. Platform. I meant platform. Yeah. yeah. And Heenan gave like a promo saying he accepted his spot on the all Madden team. So it was, I don't know. There's not two more cool guys to watch videos of from the eighties than John Madden and Bobby Heenan. So I like the fact that there was a bit of a crossover there. And both with legendary partners. Yeah. Broadcast partners. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So that was part of it. And I think the all Madden team was kind of his first real foray into the world of kind of pop culture. And I know that what we probably want to close with is the video game. Yeah. But I think there's one other thing that we have to talk about, which is his roles in commercials mm-hmm. and particularly the two that I remember the most and this is probably based on my age and that I, you know, I didn't probably become aware of these things until the early to mid nineties. The one I really remember is Tenactin, the athlete's yep, that- foot spray. And he's just goes, oh, boom, tough acting Tenactin. And he did him. Was- Go ahead. That was the one I had written down first. That's the one in my head that I remember first. Um, some of the other ones out back, uh, they did a bunch of commercials for Outback as part of the bus sponsorship. Yep. Rena Center, Ace Hardware, and then the other sort of thing I remember from was Little Giants, uh, the yeah. movie, the kids' movie with Rick Moranis and Ed O'Neill. Um, he plays, you know, a version of himself. It's a cameo with him and a bunch of uh, players. Um, you know, he kind of designs like a play for the nerdy kid who then uses it in the game. So, you know, I, I, I remember the commercials and, and the things like that. The other couple of things I want to talk about, the, the Turducken did become, so I have the story of that. So they would do a game every Thanksgiving, obviously. It says, in 1996, Madden and Summerall were coming to town for a Saints broadcast. A New Orleans radio personality mentioned that somebody ought to, ought to introduce Madden to the Turducken, a Louisiana-invented meat monstrosity, we're editorializing a bit here, of duck and chicken stuffed into a turkey. Word filtered back to Madden, and sure enough, local restaurateur Glenn Misich got a call. Madden wanted to try the turducken. Um, He jumped at the chance to expose one of the nation's foremost TV foodies, went to the Superdome. Uh, One problem, he forgot to bring any plates. Somebody in the booth rounded up a couple of paper plates, couldn't find forks or knives. So Madden reached in and tore off a piece, then ate it with his hands. (laughs) Says he loved it as he was raving to Misich about the Turducken, Saints owner Tom Benson popped into the booth to say hello. Benson stuck out his hand and Madden had to make a quick decision what to do with his Turducken fingers. He quickly licked them and shook Benson's hands. <laughs> That's the last time Tom Benson ever spoke to me. It said over the next few years, the Turducken became the official all Madden team food and was featured prominently every Thanksgiving by Madden and Summerall. Within a few years, Mistich had gone from selling 200 per year to shipping 6,000 annually all over the world. It said, uh, then a few years ago, out of the blue, boxes of chocolate begin to arriving to his house every December. The notes always read, thanks for thinking of us all these years, John Madden. 
So that became kind of the Thanksgiving thing where you'd see like whoever, if the, you know, the cowboy, if, if the Cowboys won, you'd see like Emmett Smith with a drumstick in his hand to post game interview. And that was always the thing, you know, you'd be getting ready to go over to grandparents' house or whatever, and you'd be, or you'd be there already and you'd be watching the game. It's like, oh, does he have the turducken? It was just another one of those things that was like a cultural moment in the course of your year as a, not just as a sports fan, but just, you know, you'd think about the 25 things that you were going to encounter on Thanksgiving and three or four of them involved John Madden doing the NFC Thanksgiving game. The other thing that I think we should mention, because this was a cultural phenomenon that went a little bit beyond even just Madden was the Miller light commercials. And that was the whole taste great, less filling. And Madden was one of the first who did a lot of those commercials. And Frank DeFord, who some people might've, heard of he was a sports writer in the for sports illustrated in the 50s and 60s and 70s is considered kind of the the gold standard of sports writers a lot of guys have later said that they looked up to frank deford frank deford actually wrote a book in the 80s just about those miller light commercials and these were commercials that had everybody i think the most famous is probably bob Uecker of you know where he's talking about you know i must be in the front row and he's that type of thing he's in the farthest back row of the stadium. And so he did them. Madden did them. Billy Martin and George Steinbrenner famously did a bunch of Miller Lite commercials. You know, name a guy and they did a Miller Lite commercial, Dick Butkus. And Madden was one of these guys, you know, the whole, you know, busting through the wall. Tastes great. Less filling. You know, he's, he's rambling, you know, talking about Miller Lite in a bar. I saw one of the Miller Lite commercials with John Madden that I looked at in preparation for this episode. And it's one of the strangest commercials that I've ever seen. And I have to kind of describe the whole thing. Jesse Ventura is in a wrestling ring, wrestling against Bob Uecker. Vince McMahon and John Madden are doing commentary at some point jesse ventura forces bob euchre to submit not before they look and they show that in the corner i don't know whose corner they're in but superstar billy graham is in the corner of one of the wrestlers as jesse ventura is wrestling bob euchre after jesse ventura wins the match he peels off his mask to show that he is not, in fact, Jesse Ventura, but he is actually Elsie Greenwood, all-star defensive lineman for the Pittsburgh Steelers of the 1970s. After that, they go to the broadcast booth and Vince McMahon peels off his mask to show that he, in fact, is not Vince McMahon, but he's actually Sonny Bono for some unknown reason and so in the midst of this 45 second commercial you've got wrestling you've got football you've got baseball with euchre you've got music and pop culture with sonny bono so madden was a part of these miller light commercials that were really a phenomenon for most well, Howard Finkel's in this commercial too I'm just is like, he really yeah he's done do it do it does the ring announcing oh, i didn't i don't even remember the howard finkel are you looking at it I'm looking at Miller Lightomania. Yes. It's crazy. Like there's so many different people that just keep popping up in these things. So. Yeah. This is very bizarre. Um, 
as I think the addition of Sonny Bono is what really makes it bizarre. I have to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. Future Uh, Congressman Sonny Bono. (laughs) So the one additional thing I wanted to talk about, and this is a little later, this is the 90s, this is the 2000s, that, and it it went on way too long and he kind of, like, the Frank Caliendo impersonation of him at the time did become a huge cultural thing. Mm-hmm. I don't believe John Madden was thrilled about it, to be honest, because it was not the most flattering impression. But Frank Caliendo was a comedian. He'd been on Mad TV when Jimmy Kimmel left. Um, Fox had added Jimmy Kimmel in the late 90s to do like a comedy spot for a couple of years. One of my favorite actually is he has Lennox Lewis on and he's like, so Lennox, do you like American football? And he goes, no. And he's like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, but Kimmel like, was good on those. After Jimmy Kimmel went to ABC, they added Frank Caliendo. Who was, but did, Kimmel had, had had Caliendo as an impersonator on some of his things. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And Caliendo had been a stand-up comedian. He did a lot of impressions. He did a lot of sports impressions. And he was on that show for like 15 years. His seven would have been enough, but he did a Madden impression that became very, very famous became. And I think like a lot of impressions, I've heard Dana Carvey talk about this with this George HW Bush impression. You just keep adding it to a point where it's a little too much, not from like an insulting standpoint, but it's like Dana Carvey said, like, if you watch my like early George W Bush impressions, George HW Bush, and then you watch the end of them where I'm going like Naga, 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 Naga. It's like it becomes a little, you know what I mean? It, it's 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 every person who's ever impersonated Elvis. It's Sean Connery on Celebrity Jeopardy. Eventually, it becomes a parody of a parody. You know, and it, and it, the thing with Caliendo was it got to the point where it was like all he did was impersonate guys who were. It was like 2007, and he's doing a Bill Clinton impersonation. You know what I mean? Like. It's yeah. Like, well, you, you just don't want to learn any new in person. So, but the the Madden one was always considered very. Uh... The funniest one of those that I remember is when the Monday Night Football has had hired Dennis Miller, mm-hmm. and Jimmy Kimmel <laughs> had on a a Dennis Miller impersonator and a Madden impersonator, Caliendo as Madden, and you know they have Dennis Miller and he's he you know he's he's you know making reference to you know the 5th century in the Roman Empire and you know some actress from some silent movie in 1928 and Caliendo is mad and just goes this guy here blah 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 yuck 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 <laughs> which was a good a good a good characterization of of Dennis Miller so yeah, but no, you're right. I mean, it it became a thing. It's like I'm going to impersonate John Madden. It's like okay, well, John Madden's been retired for six years. Maybe we don't need to keep impersonating him. But yeah, he was that much in the culture by the early 2000s that that was something people did. So, as we're approaching, you know, whatever hour three of this for <laughs> us, um, hour three of our radio program. <laughs> I guess we should. St- finish with um the video game so the story of this actually goes all the way back to 1984 and you know you don't have to know much about video games to know 1984 was a very early you know video games in 1984 were things that were in arcades uh you know pac-man and uh asteroids asteroids and you know if there was football it was three dots and you know like that kind of thing 
the first Atari might have been out. Nintendo was still a year away. So what happened? I'm looking for the exact thing here. So in 1983, actually, it says uh, a guy named Trip Hawkins, excuse me, 1984, a guy named Trip Hawkins wanted to do a football video game. He was the founder of EA Sports, and he asked for a reply with John Madden. He was told, you can meet with John from December 16th to 18th, but it will be on an Amtrak train for three days. You will meet him in Denver and ride west. So the uh, he talks to him. The bunch of developers boarded the plane. He Madden was insistent that it be 11 on 11. So video game be 11 on 11. Hawkins told him that the technology just simply was not there yet for that that we could probably only get seven on seven. Madden loved the idea of the game. So he was on, that's, I think, important. Is he was on board with it right away, which kind of made him a visionary in 1984, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. But he said, that's not real football. He said he would only do it when it was 11 on 11. So Hawkins told him that this could take years. And Madden said, then it will take years. A little background. It's an 83 EA Sports and paid Dr. J and Larry Bird $25,000 apiece plus 2.5% of sales to put their first basketball game together. A year later, Madden asked for 100000 and 5% of sales. No Madden meant no game. As of the writing of this article, Madden football has sold north of 130 million copies. Um, <laughs> so they went through and... Um, you know, worked with them and eventually ended up with a game that did not come out. I believe the first one came out in 1988. And was for, how, for the personal computer, right? For the PC. The, the, the very first Madden, I believe, I'm, I'm going to pull up the, the system, but yeah, it was it was a game that came out in the, um, yeah, game. the first game came out in 1988. Um, it was for the PC. The first game I remember was Madden 92 for Sega, which was a very early Sega game. They did not have the player license or a team license. Um, 91 was the first one they got the NFL license. And then 95 was when they finally got the NFL PA license. Mm-hmm. So you would have um, city names. I remember in the early ones, the Jets were New Jersey because the Giants were New York. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And the Raiders. The Raiders were always Oakland. Even though the Raiders were in Los Angeles at the time, they were Oakland. The famous thing about the 92 game. So yeah, 98 came out for MS-DOS, Commodore 64, and Apple II. Then the same game came out for Genesis and Super Nintendo. And then finally Madden Football 92, the game I'm talking about, which was the second game, came out for Genesis. The famous thing in that was you could do a playoffs. And you couldn't do a full season yet. You could do a playoffs. And the only guy who could get hurt on the field was the quarterback. Mm-hmm. But when the quarterback got hurt for a couple of those games early on, for some reason, an ambulance would come out onto the field and just run all the other players over. <laughs> and they wouldn't be hurt. They wouldn't get hurt because the game wasn't built for that. But like for some, be like, oh, Phil Sims got hurt. And the ambulance would just come out and run a bunch of players over. So it kind of gradually became a bigger and bigger deal. Um, it was one of many games early on. And we would get it for Sega, 94, 95, 96. It was never my favorite Sega game because there were other NFL games, but they would have some cool stuff. They would have, even then, where there wasn't really the bandwidth for full audio, like commentary, there would be short clips of like, you'd hear Summerall or Madden's, like you'd hear Summerall say like, touchdown. And then you'd hear Madden would say like, oh, he'll remember it. It was like, he'll remember that in the morning after like a big hit or something yeah. like that. Um he was on the cover of all the games early on. The one I always remember is 
the Cowboys had a kicker named Chris Boniol. And for whatever reason, I, some, I just, in my head, I would always hear Pat Summerall go, the kick by Boniol. <laughs> um, so it a bigger and bigger deal. I think the, the important dates for this, in 2001, it became the exclusive NFL license. So the NFL decided they were only going to give out one license instead of, you know, multiple games. The NFL said, we're going to do, um, they basically gave John Madden football the exclusive rights to broadcast uh, or to, to make a game, an NFL game with the licenses every year. The NFL stopped doing their own game. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's, it's been exclusive for a long time. Um you know, Madden stopped doing commentary for it in the early 2000s. He said that doing the audio for it was like the least fun he's ever had in his life. Like <laughs> that's he was still involved in the game. He'd have to give like his blessing to the guys doing the commentary. But just the idea of like having to record like what it takes to record a video game over and over. He just got really tired of that. Well, um, the other thing, too, is that as the games got more advanced, you know, you play a video game, a sports video game today, and the commentary, I mean, it gets redundant, but it's mm. basically what you'd hear doing a game. You got to record commentary on basically every player in the league. And so it's not like the 90s or even the 2000s where, you, you know, you made a few kind of cliched, generic comments. You got to talk about what Brady would do throwing to Gronkowski. You got to talk about the way that the Ravens defense works and Ray Lewis. And you got to talk about, you know, Eli Manning and his struggles early in the season, but the way he's been good in the playoffs. So you have to record more and more and more and more as the seasons go on and the games get more advanced. So I'm sure that was a part of it too. I always wondered as time went on, how much role he was actually playing in these games or whether they basically just used his name to continue on with the brand. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, um, I think I read that he was, he was making an average of 14 million a year from the game. Um, yeah. You know, for a long time, we'd like, oh, people know John Madden is the broadcaster and the video game guy. They probably don't even know he was the coach of the Raiders. Kids now probably don't even know who John Madden was. A lot of them. I'm not saying all of them, but they know the video game. Madden yeah, is Madden's just, just the brand. Yeah. Madden is the brand. And I think, you know, we're not probably neither of us are the people for this discussion, but like, I think you can't overstate how important a realistic football video game was. Nobody knew what the market for video games was in the eighties. It was again, to a lot of people, it was the thing you go to an arcade and plug in quarters and try to, you know, beat Donkey Kong. And then it was, you know, it got to the point where it was every year. And it also, I think the other thing it ushered in was the annual game. Updated rosters for every season comes out every year. You know, Tecmo Super Bowl was my, was still my favorite game of all time. We should do an episode just on Tecmo Super Bowl (laughs) once, but it, it didn't come out every year. Madden came out every year and now they all do. So you don't even think about it, but you know, it's, its importance to the video game industry and also to the sports video game industry specifically. And just real quick to put a button on that. Um, it said Matt, it's NFL considers the series. It's 33rd franchise because each week during the season, EA sports receives the same searchable film database of every play that each of the league's 32 teams do. And it says the game is the NFL's second largest source of licensing revenue after apparel. 
Now it's probably really distant second way back. Yeah. If apparel is one group, jerseys, shirts, hats, you know what I mean? Everything. Um, Yeah. What else would it be other than that? Yeah. So, um, but uh, the last 10 years of it, probably just his name. And they would say, Hey, John, you know, this is what's new for the game this year. And he'd go, Oh, great. But at the beginning, he was intimately involved, just lending his name to it. And I think that that gave it some credibility. He, a couple of things about him with the game. First of all, he always insisted on realism mm-hmm. and obviously, you know, how realistic can a video game be? You know, you can try it with a sports video game, but I think there was a time when, you know, he saw that it, you know, if you went for it for on fourth down in the game, you would get it like, you know, one out of every three times. And he said, no, that's not, that's not the way it works. You know, we need to, we need to dial back how often a team that goes for it on fourth and four actually gets the first down, you know, onside kicks, that type of thing. So he did have a role in trying to make the games more like a simulation and less like an arcade. This podcast being what it is and me being who I am, I love the old players in the game. You know, I love playing MLB The Show with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Ty Cobb, and I love playing NBA 2K. How have you played those games with those guys? They've been dead a long time. Be serious. And I've played NBA. Be serious. (laughs) Have you taken out of here? (laughs) NBA 2K. I like playing with Kuzi and Russell and uh, Chamberlain and Willis Reed and all these guys. The Madden game, you know, they wouldn't have player names, but they'd have numbers. You know, as early as the the mid 90s, you could play early in the mid 90s. You could play a game and you could play the 66 Packers against the. 93 Cowboys. I remember I had a friend of mine who used to argue who was better, the 60s Cowboys or the 90s or the 60s Packers or the 90s Cowboys. And then when I got the Madden game, I was like, oh, we can settle this. You know, we can play the 66 Packers versus the 92 Cowboys. So that kind of thing, you know, he was sort of a pioneer with including those older teams in it. So, yeah, I mean, it is a franchise. I hope that as time goes on, he's remembered for more than just the video game series. But he did the video game the right way and trying to have it be as close to regular football as it possibly could be. Yeah, whatever the the most realistic they were capable of at the time. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's evolved, but nobody, you know, jumps through the goalposts or, uh, you know, picks up a guy and throws him 20 yards down the field. It's not NFL blitz. Yeah, exactly. So. Just another part of his legacy. And, you know, he is one of those guys where you can kind of tell the story of the last 50 or 60 years of professional football in the United States through the lens of John Madden, you know, coached against Lombardi, was part of the AFL, and then the Immaculate Reception and the Super Bowls, and then all this stuff with the 80s, with the 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 dominance of the NFC and particularly the NFC with the Giants and the Redskins and then later Dallas and the 49ers dynasty and then in the 2000s he did Monday Night Football and you know Brady and Manning and so a guy who touched so many things and was a part of so many different football and cultural phenomena in his you know, 50 some odd years as an active part of the NFL. So I think this was a good call on your part to devote an additional episode to, or, a, uh, you know, a, 
a specific unique episode to the to the to the career, the life and career of John Madden, the football life of John Madden. You know, it was it was, I think, enjoyable to not that we got super deep, but to get, you know, to, to be thorough and to not just go, oh, he was the coach of the Raiders. And then he said, boom, a lot. And it was a video game. You know, I think we shed some sort of light and just sort of um, context to everything. We thrive on thoroughness on the Sports History Network and the Hello Old Sports Podcast, specifically on the Sports History Network. So, yes. Well, did you have anything else to contribute or add before we wrapped it up for the night? No, I have to go to work in 10 minutes. So, um, (laughs) that's a joke based on how long we've been talking. But, uh, you know, no, I, I, Again, he's a he's a he's a singular figure in the history of football, and there's not a lot of those. Well, there's no comparing. There's nobody to compare him to. Yeah, he is. He is an original. And we, we'd like mm-hmm. to talk about the originals here. And he is definitely one of them. Well, thank you all for joining us uh, into another deep dive this time into the life and career of John Madden. Until our next deep dive, I am Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. Boom. <laughs>